Well, pleasant good afternoon to all of you. Hope you all have had a full and fulfilling day. As you know, this seminar is entitled the Lift Him Up. It's the Lift Him Up section of our ASI seminar. And uh, the title of my sharing with you this afternoon is Lift Him Up, How the Message of Christ, Our Righteousness, Saved Me and My Ministry. Uh, so how shall we begin? Uh, I've thought long and hard about this. And I think it's best to uh, stick with God's model and how God likes to explain things. But uh, let's go back to the beginning. You're very familiar with this passage. In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. And so as God teaches us about things that are outside of our understanding, it appears to me that often God uses this model of giving us the big picture first. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And only after you've had a chance to kind of absorb the big picture does he zoom the camera in and give you more details as it was in creation. God said, God formed, God breathed. This is how he did it. But the first thing he gives you is the big picture. Created the heavens and the earth. And now that you've kind of absorbed that, let me tell you how I did it. And he does that over and over again. Uh, the Bible says in uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus told his disciples, follow me and I will do what? Make you fishers of men. And only after he told them, this is what I'm going to do with you, did he spend the next three and a half years going over the details and the experience of how that was to be done. In my haste to begin on time, I forgot to have I talk with the most important person in the room, our Lord and Savior. So let's pause here. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time, and I am anxious that your word be clear. This can only happen if your spirit is our teacher. We pray that you will impress our minds and our hearts with your word, that none of me will be seen, and all of Jesus will be what we remember and hear. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, so... Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's the big picture. And then the details, I'll work that out over the next three and a half years. He did it again in John chapter 13 and verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you. Do it first, then I'll give you the details of what I just did and help you understand the significance of what just happened. Big picture first, then the details. So as we talk about the gospel, it is such an expansive concept that I was uh, reading a, uh, something from something Ellen White says. She says that this, this concept is so broad, it is so high that it reaches into heaven and it spans eternity. In, in other words, if you grasp this by faith, this literally will take you straight to heaven and stretch your lifetime to last for eternity. Now, how are we going to boil something that large down to a 30-minute talk? You can't. And so what God says is, first, just, just step back and grab the, the big picture. And the snapshot that gets my attention and that got my attention and that literally rescued me from apathy and and uh, probably ultimately destruction is, 
is my favorite hero in the Bible outside of Jesus. That is the Apostle Paul. Have you ever wondered how this man, a captive in chains, conquered the way he did? Conquered kings, invaded courthouses, rescued people from jail. And often as I was coming up as a, as a young pastor, I, I often wondered, I wish I could have worked with the Apostle Paul. I wish I could have been his protege, heard what he said and did what he did. But of course, I wasn't there. And yet, thank God for the spirit of prophecy. She tells us some of the ways that he was able to do all that he did. And, and here she says, his cheerfulness under affliction was so unlike the spirit of the afflicted of the world that they, talking about the pagans, the heathens, the Romans, could but see that, there, that, that a power higher than any earthly influence was ever abiding with him. When they beat that man back till it was almost like hamburger and, and laid him in that rat-infested prison and he broke out with singing, they said, that is unnatural. Now, if that's a fake, he's going to quit in about five minutes. But he kept it up hour after hour, broke it up with testimony, went back to singing until heaven came down. And you know the story, though the walls came tumbling down. They said, that is, that's, that's the spirit of a God. That there's no way that man is merely operating under human power. And so they didn't know what was operating in him, but they could see something of a higher than an earthly influence was operating in him. Look at him again as he's standing before Nero. All who had seen, uh, and this reminds me of Christ. This is what I wanted to point out in that Christ operated the same way. Everyone who saw Christ when he suffered said that he had the image of God. But how did Paul reflect Christ so? So much so that the prophet says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he does what? trusteth in thee. So whatever Paul was operating on, it, it, was an, it was an idea of trust, of faith in thee, in someone. And according to this text, and Ellen White speaking here, this gave him heaven-born peace. And this peace came through his expression. And that's what draw and won so many souls to this thing that he talked about called the gospel. So here Paul was not merely talking about an idea. Paul literally trusted in this person, Jesus Christ, the same Jesus whom he was preaching his gospel to the extent that he had such a peace that even under affliction he would win souls to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was operating in that man? What was operating in him as he stood before Nero uh, just about to be sentenced to death? And, 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 they, and the prophet says, Never had they seen a man wear such a look of holy calmness as did the prisoner before him. When he was permitted to speak in his own behalf, all listened with eager interest to his words. What got their attention? They've never seen a man so calm, so at peace, so unafraid. And when he opened his mouth, everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. And when he opened his mouth... 
With more than human eloquence and power, he urged home upon their hearts the truths of the gospel. And that's, and that's where the Lord began to give me some understanding. What did Paul talk about that moved cities and, and jailers and, and even kings on their throne? He is urging the truth of something called the gospel. His words strike a chord which vibrates in the hearts of even the most hardened soldiers. They stop cursing and look over to listen to this man who seems to be inspired from above. And whatever he is saying vibrates in their hearts. And they feel a twinge that they haven't felt since they were 10. And that thrills in unison with the mission of angels. Never before had that company listened to words like these. The truths were destined to shake the nations. They were endowed with a power that would live through all time. And as he stands as God's representative, and his words are as the voice from heaven. The cause of truth to which he has devoted his life, he makes to appear as the only cause that will never fail. Though he may perish for the truth's sake, the gospel will not perish. And he's triumphing now. God lives and the truth will triumph. And so they're listening now, what is this gospel that is motivating this guy? This guy is about to have his head cut off, and yet he seems unafraid. He seems concerned about us. What is this gospel? His countenance glows with the light of heaven, as though reflecting the rays of the sun. And tears dimmed many eyes that had never before been seen to weep. The gospel message found its way into the minds and hearts of many who had never listened to it but for the imprisonment of Paul. And even Nero on his throne, that man whose soul was stained with matricide, even to him, the invitation of mercy was extended to that guilty and hardened Nero. Even Nero. For a quick moment, heaven opened up. And as if Jesus appealed to him, yes, you, even you right now with your murderous, incestuous self can be saved. And it terrorized Nero to think that he would have to stand before God. And yet this God was saying, I don't want to destroy you. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of repentance. Yes, even you can respond to Paul's God. But Nero slammed the door on Paul, and when he did, he slammed the door on his own salvation. Because I've discovered and that this gospel is the issue on which every soul that's ever been born will rise and fall. He that believeth and is baptized will be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. But I want you to look at the description of Paul as she describes what he did in that courtroom. And then we'll focus in on the details of what he was actually saying. But look how she describes. He was speaking with more than human eloquence. He urged home upon the hearts the truth of the gospel. His voice was as the voice of heaven. Look at the short-term and long-term effects of this message. His words would strike a chord even in the hearts of the most hardened. That was short-term. I don't know what they did to it. Many of them surrendered and became Christians. Some perhaps did not. The long-term effects of that message were that they were destined to shake the nations. And ladies and gentlemen, it, it wasn't longer after, much longer after Paul had died and all the prophets and the apostles had sealed their testimony in blood that this gospel was preached 
to the known world. What was the effect of Paul's countenance and his message upon his hearers? Well, when his hearers looked at him and they saw his face, his face reflected the light of heaven as though it was reflecting the rays of the sun. His words were not just intellectual words. They gripped the heart and people began to weep as Christ was evidently set forth before them crucified. And this message called the gospel found its way into the hearts of many who were there. And even Nero was affected. Now I want to fast forward thousands of years to another time. Melbourne, Australia, some Armandale meetings were taking place October and November of 1895. We weren't there, but there was an eyewitness that we can have a lot of confidence in. And that is Ellen G. White. And she describes over and over again, God has given a young preacher who was preaching at that camp meeting, Brother Prescott, a special message for the people. This message came from God. The truths that come forth from the human lips in the demonstration of the spirit and power. He is speaking under the impression of the Holy Ghost. We are hoping and praying for an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the people. We think that the best class of people are attending the meetings. The interest awakened exceeds anything we have yet had here in camp meetings. This man is under the inspiration of God. People are catching this inspiration. The place is packed. I've just been listening, she goes on to write, to a discourse given by Professor Prescott. It was a most powerful appeal to the people. Not, those not of our faith seemed deeply interested. They said, there is no life in our churches. Everything is so cold and dry. We are starving for the bread of life. And uh, I just want to pause here, and I'll get a chance to talk with you in just a bit. But I just want to say, ladies and gentlemen, too many of our churches have the air condition turned up too high. It is not God's will that his message be cold. When Christ spoke, even the disciples who had heard him for years after years said, did not our heart burn within us? Christ's message gives your heart burn. Excuse that expression. It doesn't allow you to be tepid, tepid. It will fire even in the very depths of your soul. And when Brother Prescott was under the spirit of Christ, they said, our churches are dry. Our churches are cold. You Adventists have warmth and you have bread. And she writes, these people are the very best class of society. All ages sit and listen as for their life. Some men who are superintendents of Sabbath schools are eager to get the discourses as they see our reporters taking notes in shorthand. They say, I do not want to lose one idea. All the words are precious. And when they saw Ellen White's secretary taking notes, they mobbed her. Give us those notes. What did he just say? And I've looked over those notes again, and I tell you, that was a powerful message that that brother gave. And I'll, I'll give you a chance to know where you can find it, ladies and gentlemen. Professor Prescott's sermons, the words are spoken in the demonstration of the Spirit and with power. And look at these terminology, this terminology she uses. His face is what? 
with the what? Where did we hear that before? I think I may safely say I have never in my experience seen so large a number attending meetings not of our faith who are so hungry for the truth. I have never seen an evangelistic meeting like this. It's not just five non-Adventists and 50 Adventists. There are, this is a large number of non-Adventists. I think I may safely say, I think I just, oh, did y'all, was I reading that? Okay, I had to get used to this thing. All right, and then look at this statement. The interests does what? Steadily does what? Now, ladies and gentlemen, we can be, we're all family here. Traditionally, our, our evangelistic meetings start off large and end up how? And it's like, it was like an episode of Survivor, isn't it? Who's going to be left on the island after I get done with the mark of the beast? No, she said, not here. This man is inspired. His face is aglow. And we're going to get to what he's talking about. But, but the crowd starts here and ends up here. What was he talking about that made such a difference in his meeting versus any other meeting Ellen White had sat under, and she had sat under some of the best. She says in every sermon, well, how many sermons? So you're here, ladies and gentlemen, for a purpose. And God wants to help us understand how our evangelism, public or private, can turn around and become much more effective. In every sermon, what did he do? Christ was what? Preached. And as the great and mysterious truths regarding his presence and work in the hearts of men were made clear and plain, the truth regarding his second coming, his relation to the Sabbath, his work as creation, his relation to man and the source of life appeared in a glorious and convincing light that sent conviction to many hearts with solemnity. The people said, what did they say when they walked out of that meeting? Now, ladies and gentlemen, if I'm a candle and I have to tell you I'm burning, am I burning? No. And I've been around a little bit, and I've heard that, and I'm an evangelist, how oftentimes we have to remind people that we're preaching the truth. I recently heard a dear a story revived from back in the 70s of uh, before the Sabbath message was preached, the story was told of how, uh, the, you know, truth lost its clothes. Have you ever heard that story? That's an old story. Truth lost his clothes. Lie to, took his clothes while he was skinny dipping. Went into the town and told the lie in truth's clothes and how he had to preach. And the preacher said, tonight I'm preaching the naked truth. When Pastor Prescott got finished preaching, he didn't have to say, now you have heard the truth. When the people left, they said, we have listened to the truth tonight. Prescott preached Christ. The audience said, we've heard the truth. And what Pastor Prescott did and, and what he did not do, he did not say, tonight I'm going to talk about the state of the dead, give you 60 texts on the state of the dead, and then at the end, talk about Jesus. That's not preaching Christ. 
That's preaching doctrine and spicing it up with Jesus Christ. Christ is not a spice. Christ ought to be the main meal. Somebody said, have a little salt, have a little potatoes with those, your salt. Look very carefully. He didn't talk about Sabbath and then talk about Jesus. He talked about his Sabbath. That makes all the difference in the world. I, I, I'm going to share my testimony, but I just want you to step back and see the big picture. So Paul is rocking kingdoms. Kings are rocking in their chairs. Soldiers are weeping. Sinners are being convicted as this man is about to be sentenced to death. His face is glowing. The gospel is reaching hearts. Prescott comes to Australia where Adventists at this time had a bad name. Nobody believed that we were even Christians. He comes in preaching and the people saying, that man is inspired. That man is preaching the group. Look at his face. It's glowing like the sun. Can we have those notes? Let me go back. Yeah, two gentlemen were coming to a Sabbath afternoon service. One remarked to another, hey, why don't you read that so we can stay awake? What did he say? Pause there right there. Is, is that a little bit too true? Huh? Do they, do they have us pegged pretty good? Oh, that's about right. All they're going to hear is Moses and Mount Sinai wrapped up in prophecy. Nothing wrong with Moses. Come on, say amen. amen. Moses is where we're trying to go. I don't have a problem with Mount Sinai or what came from it. But that's what they said. That's all we're going to hear. Let's go get our whipping. But read on what happened. Read it with me, beloved. It says what? After the meeting. Oh, yeah, what? And what? Shock. Why was he shocked? Read on. What did he hear? All right, all we're going to hear is Moses and Mount Sinai, but what? And added what? That he could hardly believe his ears. What did he hear? Nothing but the plain gospel. Caught him off guard. And, and, and so, so Prescott's meeting is going from strength to strength. Word is getting out. Never a man spake like that man. We've never heard Christ like this man is preaching. And we've never seen him related to so many different subjects in the Bible. We thought he was just a little baby born in a manger, went back to heaven. But he is connected with every other truth in the 66 books. This brother is talking about Christ. I, I read one of his sermons. You all forgive me if I get a little excited. This thing has changed my life and my ministry. This brother would preach the gospel he had a sermon entitled The Gospel in Stones, didn't he, Brother Joseph? Something like that. Sermon in Stones. He preached how Jesus Christ's gospel was being presented when people were being, unfortunately, stoned in the Old Testament for breaking the Ten Commandments. And he says, I know you all can't figure out how the gospel is being preached there. But he says, what God is trying to teach you is that any time a sinner comes in direct contact with the law, all the law is going to do is stone you to death. You've got to come in contact with the law in Christ, and, and those stones will be made into bread. Come on, say amen. amen. And the people were just, can we get that? Can we get that? Can we get that? Many who had attended 
the Brighton meeting two years ago. Now, these are folks that had sat through his Revelation seminar, Seventh-day Adventist Revelation seminar. They knew where we were coming from. They had said, okay, you all have a lot of good information, but I'm going to go back to my church and share it with my church. I've heard that more times than I care to tell. But they were now present at the Armandale meeting. They went through the meetings without deciding to obey the truth, but are manifesting a greater what? Interest here, and some have done what? To a what? In obedience to the truth, 20 were what? Baptized. So people who sat through meetings before and heard this, they never heard it like that and were baptized. And she says over and over again, the people were eager to hear the word of God. He's under the direct demonstration of the spirit of God. We've heard many say, I have been told that this people do not preach Christ, but I have never attended meetings where Christ was more manifestly taught and exalted than in the sermons and in every line of work at these meetings. And then Ellen White gives her statement. And what is that? Let's read it together. How can Seventh-day Adventists preach any other doctrine? Our doctrine according to the prophet, especially after she underscores hearing Prescott, is to be Christ in connection with every other truth in the Bible. And so I see a direct parallel between Paul and Prescott. They're both uh, very clearly under a higher than earthly influence. People listen as is spellbound. Paul points him to the great sacrifice. Prescott, in every sermon Christ was preached, their faces are glowing. And Paul found, uh, the, 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 the gospel found the way uh, to the minds and hearts of many. The invitation of mercy was extended even to the guilty and hardened Nero. And Prescott, the same thing. Some of those who attended the meeting were baptized. Now I want to share, uh, share my testimony. So I was uh, languishing along as a pastor in... One of our conferences, I used to, I started off pastoring in Paducah, Kentucky. That's way down in the middle of nowhere. And um, went through traditional educational training. Remember getting uh, the sermons from all the great evangelists. All of us were called to do evangelism. And it would scare me to death to think that I had to stand before, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 people. And, and hopefully at the end of it, somebody would give their hearts to Christ. So I tried to mimic all the great preachers and all their sermons. I used to get some of the sermons from one of the great evangelists who is now resting. And he would have sermons entitled Adam's Mother's Birthday and the Great Chicken Supper. That's when the birds come down and eat all the lost. Those, those were the sermons designed to get people to move out of their seats. I remember an evangelist sharing with me, the, with a group of us, that the best way to get people to make a decision is, is, to, is to frighten them with sudden death. And if they sit long enough, you start telling stories on how people died when they didn't respond to the baptismal appeal. And he had a lot of stories from people getting their heads hit open with coconuts. to. And that was my method of evangelism. I, 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 I didn't know anything else. But I knew that it was losing its ability to work. My wife and I, along with two other evangelists, were out in Las Vegas uh, about a few years ago. And I met a friend 
who knew somebody that could help me. And even though I didn't know I needed help at the time, he did. And he introduced me to a man that was going to share with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said, I thought I was what I was preaching. And as I sat and listened to this man, as he shared the gospel, my heart was melted. He began to share with me things that I had never read before in context. Thoughts like, before I was even sorry for my sins, Jesus loved me enough to pay for the penalty of my sins in full. I learned that God's love was unconditional. I knew that in theory, but not in practice, that while I was still his enemy, God was not waiting for me to take one step and he would take two. That's what I told people. No, Jesus would take all the steps, come to where I was, knock on my door, and the only thing he would not do is force his way into my heart. And as I began to listen to these truths, my mind was stirred. And I began to ask this man, I said, I think these things are too good to be true. But he began to share with me where I could learn about it. And I ran into others who were friends of his that were sharing books that had this message called the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, look, this thing is powerful. It's changed my life. It's changed my, uh, my, my uh, interaction with my children. It's changed my ministry. And I said, well, let's just look into this thing and let us study. I discovered that this was no new phenomena. I wanted to share with you, I began to uh, study deeper into this everlasting gospel, this message, and I'll share with you just a minute exactly what it is. But let me just share with you the impact it's had. Since that time that I learned how to preach Christ in connection with every doctrine, I have seen God transform my ministry my baptisms have gone from, help us, Lord, <laughs> to baptizing nearly 70% of the second night audience. And I've seen it over and over and over again. It's not the man. It's the message. We and my wife, we went out to Tacoma, Washington. We just started learning this message. Went out there, and they had a meeting with a friend of ours, a pastor in his church. Opening night, there were 80 non-Adventists. That was a miracle because it was held in the church. Six weeks later, we baptized 60. Next year, went to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Had about 150 on opening night, 125 on opening night. Six weeks later, we baptized 90. Started a brand new church. Only three, we only allowed three Seventh-day Adventists to come over. Everyone else was brand spanking new. Only the head elder, the musician, and his wife, are, uh, and the head elder's wife were the Adventists. Everybody else was brand spanking new. We had chaos for a while because they never heard of Sabbath school and, and all those things. My wife was the superintendent of the Sabbath school, and in a few years... God has so transformed those dear brothers and sisters that our children were studying out of the great controversy for Sabbath school. Some of those children went on to preach in connection with one of my evangelistic campaigns, and 20 young people gave their hearts to Christ and were baptized. Went down to St. Louis the year after that, did another meeting. On the final Sabbath, made our appeal, 80 people came down for baptism. 
And the, the, the list just goes on and on and on. Here's Fresno. I was just there in the, in the spring. And uh, I don't know how much time we have. I have a testimony that the wife gave. I don't know if uh, you, you'll have time to hear all this, but she's just marveling. Not at me. She's marveling at the power of preaching Christ and what it has had, the impact it has had on her church and on the audience. And we had a large, large baptism in connection with that campaign. Um, this is her singing here, talking here. Uh, if you're interested in it, I can give you that video a little later. Okay. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of what this message is. And I, I want you, how many of you all have your Bibles and have pens? Okay, you do? Wonderful. I'm going to take the pictures off for just a second. And I want to uh, share some quotes with you in some Bible texts. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. If somebody has it, I'd like you to read it. Where's my little... Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 6. Somebody have that? Somebody can read that for us? Where he has made us, what everybody? Accepted how? So according to the text that we just read, are we accepted because of how good we are or because of how good someone else is? Or what do you think that text is saying? I don't want to give you leading answers. What do you think that text says? God has made us accepted where? Who is the beloved? In Christ. So Christ has done something through his doing and dying that has caused God to accept the entire human race. And so this becomes then the basis of our discussion as I do evangelism. I then preach what this gift is and how this gift works. So let's go to uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. According, we've already read that he's called us and saved us in Christ before the world began. Let's look at the details on how that works out. Luke chapter 2 verse 10. Somebody read that text for us very quickly and I have quite a few more quotes to go through. All right, verse, and what's the good joy, uh, the good news to everybody? Verse 10. Okay, so according to the angel, the Jesus Christ was the Savior of how many people? And this was good news to how many people? How about to the Muslims? How about good news to atheists? How about to those that don't believe it? He's still their Savior. They just don't believe it. And this is what the angel told the disciple. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the shepherds, the shepherds were, of course, to tell the world that Jesus Christ was the Savior uh, for all men. And Paul says that over and over again. Now, to save us from what? Well, you know, I don't have to go through all these texts. What is Jesus to save us from? How do you know? Bible says so. And uh, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall what? 
save his people from their what? Sin. All right. And sin, as we know, and I'd like to share this, and I'm sharing this with you. Sin has a penalty. It has power and it has presence. So what is the penalty or the wage of sin? All right. What is uh, and then does sin have a power? Yes. Paul says that when I would do good, evil is present with me and the thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And sin has a presence. The Bible says the law of sin is in our members. So Jesus came to save us from or in sin. So can I tell a drunk that when you receive Christ in all of his fullness, he not only has paid for the penalty of all your sins, but he has enough power to keep you from drinking tonight. Can I tell him that? Can he believe that? Can he experience that? Can he experience that tonight? And any other message, ladies and gentlemen, is not setting people free. I had the privilege of uh, sharing this. Uh, Miss uh, uh, Judy is here. We were out together in Fresno, California. And uh, after six weeks of seeing Christ and him crucified and seeing his love, seeing his power, seeing how he, he initiates and how he keeps pursuing and how, he, how uh, he doesn't wait on us. He always comes to the door and knocks. Unbeknownst to me, there was a lady who was very consistent in coming out. It's a miracle how she even came. I have her testimony on, on a video. But unbeknownst even to us, after we heard her testimony, is that she was a 12-year. She was the top seller of Dyson vacuum cleaners in the nation. Still is. She outsells everybody. But what we didn't know, she had a 12-year meth habit. Meth is worse than crack. Twelve years. She was a high-functioning drug addict. And she had pleaded with God to get her off of meth and hadn't been successful. She came out and she heard how Christ can save from the penalty and the power and ultimately at the second coming from the presence of sin. And she decided to trust God. Surrender completely to his arms. Stop trying and just trust God. Surrender fully to him. And she wrote me this, uh, this testimony. 94 days later, she emails me and says, Pastor, God has kept me off of meth 94 days. And she quoted, He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. God can set us free, but this is the gospel that will lead people to lay hold on that from the penalty power and the presence of sin. And uh, so these are the things that I, I was sharing that were shared with me, first of all. And then I began to share night after night. And I don't even touch when I do evangelism. I divide my evangelism into two sections. The first half of my evangelism, and I got this by looking at what Prescott did and by, and by extrapolating what Paul does. And when you, talk, when you read uh, the book of Romans, the first half of my evangelistic meeting or my Bible studies, I spend it entirely and exclusively on talking about what Christ has done to save us. And I'll go down through the list of all the things that he has done and what he is, how complete that salvation is. And only after about halfway through will I invite people to receive this Christ. To let him move into their life and to live out his life in them. 
And only after they have made this decision and they made it only after they've had text after text and evidence after evidence of the, what Christ has promised, that Christ said he had done and they believe that, then I begin to share with them what Christ will do when he lives in them. Now, when Christ comes into the heart of a sinner who surrenders, what day do you think he's going to keep when he moves in, if he's allowed to have his way? What day do you think he's going to keep? Why, why do you think he's going to keep the Sabbath? Because you're Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> huh? Why do you think Jesus is going to keep the Sabbath when he comes in? He's a Sabbath keeper, but that was in the New Testament times, right? But he's what? The same. That's what I wanted to hear. He's the what? Same yesterday, today, and forever. So do I need to try and convince people to become Sabbath keepers, or do we invite them to let the Lord of the Sabbath come in? Oh, that makes all the difference in the world. You see, when I used to preach the Sabbath, I would give you hundreds, well, 140 texts or thereabouts that the seventh day is the Sabbath that you ought to keep. And people would say, thank you very much. That's good information. I'll take that back to my church. Maybe they'll start keeping the Sabbath. But now, when I preach the Sabbath, as I told my elders at the church that I used to pastor not long ago, uh, not long ago that... Uh, you can preach the Sabbath without even talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments ought to be just the icing on the cake. I was talking with a, with, a, with a pastor, and he said, how do you do that? I said, well, you just go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. And I just take them down. I said, who did all the work? God did. And then after God does all the work and man does none of the work, then the next thing we see is God sitting down on the seventh day and doing what? Resting. Resting because he's tired? No. Resting because his work is what? Finished. It's done. It's perfect. And he invites Adam. I didn't, you didn't help me, but you get to sit down and celebrate with me. You get to rest with me on my day of rest because I did all the work. So I share with the audience that the seventh day is always Christ's day of work when he demonstrates that his work is now perfect and finished. Then I take him to the New Testament. God gave him a new job because of sin. A man had fallen into a, a, depra a depraved situation, and God sent not his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. So his work for 33 and a half years was to save the what? His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And after 33 and a half years of living out a perfect life so that we could have a perfect record, he now had to die that death that you deserve. And he goes up to Dead Man's Hill. He gives his life. Paul, uh, Isaiah says he pours out his soul unto death. And his final words on the cross before he expired were, it is what? And then the very next thing the Savior does after saving the world is we find him doing what? Resting in the tomb. On what day? Seventh day, because that's always his day of when his work is now what? 
finished. And so Paul brings this into the New Testament and says, we which have believed the gospel to enter into rest, even as he says, the Lord rested on the seventh day. So when you connect the Sabbath with Christ or Christ with his Sabbath, then people don't walk away from it saying, well, you all keep Saturday, we keep Sunday, but we all love Jesus. No, they can't say that anymore. Now they realize, no, the Jesus you love and the Jesus I love is the Lord of the Sabbath. That is his sign that he made us without any help from us. Come on, say amen. And he saved us without any help from us. Come on and say amen. It is all his work which he started, and it is God's work which he has what? Finished. And when he rests on the seventh day, he says, now, if y'all believe that, rest with me on my day of rest. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And as people begin to embrace Christ in all of his fullness, his, his day, it begins to transform their life. How do you present the health message in connection with Christ? I hear a lot of times we talk about the health message, and it's always wonderful to talk about how we've, if we eat better, we'll live longer. But ladies and gentlemen, is that the motivation for us to, uh, to, to embrace the health message? It ought not be. It ought to be a little higher than that. When we connect it with Christ, you don't have to talk about, well, it's because, you know, is it vegan or is this? You connect it with Christ. It has its own motivating power. <laughs> Jesus considered his body to be a temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He spake concerning his body. When that Christ is brought into my experience, and I understand how Christ views his body, when Christ comes in, how then will the new believer view his body? As what? As a temple of the Lord. And just as we wouldn't let anybody desecrate a church, this new believer, when he finally understands that his body belongs to this Savior who has given him this complete and expensive salvation, and he ought not let the devil desecrate his temple, a whole new motivation comes into play for clean and unclean foods, alcohol, tobacco, and all these other things. If you all kind of see that, let me just say amen. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is what Christ has given us. And this message was given to the church, and I could just go on all the doctrines. They're all connected with Christ in just that same way. But God sought to give this message to us, and he gave it to us over and over again. But I want to read a text, a passage from you that you may be familiar with. Um, it's a passage that Ellen White says in uh, the, a wonderful writing about this message. How many of you all have ever heard of the history of the church in 1888? Let me see your hands. Now, let me ask you a more probing question. How many of you had the privilege of going to Ron's, uh, Ron Duffield's seminar this morning? Okay. If you didn't get a chance to go to that because you have to pick, I don't know if this thing is on CD, but you need to get that seminar. Because this is not a flash in a plan pan that has just happened. God has sent this message over 120 some odd years ago through two young men named Jones and Wagoner. And this message was to help us lift up Christ more evidently before the world. It was to restore our eyes back to Jesus 
as our only Savior. And Ellen White wrote, hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. Now we have a message. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is our message, our argument, our doctrine. Our doctrine is to be what she just described. And if we would do that and lift him up in connection with all the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen, it would literally transform our lives, our churches, and the world around us. And while these men were preaching this message, I just, um, for those of you that um, don't know, God sent this message. And uh, how many of you have seen this book called The Return of the Latter Rain? Okay, those of you who have not, you got to get it. You got to get this. What's that? Where's the booth? Yeah, the booth's in the hall, 439. It's called the Glad Tidings, 1888 Glad Tidings Publishing Booth. And I know most of you have not seen this. How many of you have this book? Okay, just a few. This is called, so I'm sorry, Wounded in the House of His Friends. And this one's called The Return of the Latter Rain. The what of the Latter Rain? Believe it or not, the Lord began to pour out His Spirit when they were studying this message and beginning to experience it and preach it. The Lord was pouring out His Spirit in the early drops of the latter rain. Revivals were sparking up all over America, in Battle Creek, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Russia. Fifteen-year-olds were saying the latter rain is beginning to fall. Lives are being transformed. I remember reading about uh, some folks up in Battle Creek, they were non-Adventists. They just heard about these Adventists having some meeting down there in their tabernacle. They wanted to go hear these Adventists preach. They weren't thinking about making any decisions. They just walked in, and the Spirit of God was moving so powerfully in that meeting that Ellen White, uh, that someone was to- telling Ellen White that people were converted. They went out to their homes, telling their neighbors what God had done for them, and they immediately began to keep the keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, even though they hadn't heard any sermons on the Sabbath. Their hearts were so tender, just a little whiff from the Holy Spirit. And they said, yes, Lord, I don't need 140 texts. I see it. I'm not arguing. I am yours. You are mine. If the Sabbath belongs to you, it belongs to me. And lives were being changed, ladies and gentlemen. And, and, and the spirit of prophecy, the Lord serving the testimony of Jesus says over and over again, Jesus, if that had just been maintained and increased, Jesus would have come back over 100 years ago. There would have been no World War I, no World War II, no Iraq. And this delay, God is suffering. I mean, those, those poor people in Syria... I watched the documentary. I just couldn't watch anymore. And every time those children who are being bombed cry out to whoever they cry out to calling on God, God hears that cry. He feels that pain. None of this needed to have happened if we had kept looking to Jesus Christ in this message. But the book is encouraging because it says the return of the latter rain. And we know based on the spirit of uh, on the bible in revelation chapter 18 that this world will be lightened with the glory of god would you say amen to that amen. and i believe you are the generation that is going to bring this experience back 
into our homes and into our churches. Aren't you tired of Laodicea? Doesn't it make you sick that we're so laid back, so lazy, so full of sin, so worldly? I mean, you can come to ASI and it's a safe place to come, but most of the places that that we have to call home, you almost have to skip the praise and worship time. It is so worldly. And I'm not putting down anybody. I'm just saying that's the environment in which we live. But, but ladies and gentlemen, God wants this thing to change. And the message that God has sent to the church, you're not going to get it through osmosis. You're not going to get it by just wishing you got it. Prescott didn't have it. He had to hear it and then study it. He had to then surrender to it. First, he didn't like it. And why? Because when you hear this message that Christ is our righteousness, it lowers your glory into the dust. When you hear that it is all of Jesus and none of you, your job is simply to say, not I, but what? Not my will, but what? His job is to do the work. You don't get any glory. You don't get any points. And if you're willing to be a beggar in the sight of God, if you're willing to be wretched and miserable and naked, then God has a robe for you. God has gold for you. God has eye salve so that you can actually see things as God sees them. And this message is what we need as, as, a, as a movement, as a people. I've seen it happen in evangelistic meetings, but I want to see it happen in churches and more so in my life around the world. So there's some unique things. You say, well, is this gospel the same thing that the Sunday folks? I mean, that's what they talk about. No. Someone asked Ellen White a question. Is justification by faith the third angel's message? She says it is the third angel's message in verity. What was being preached by those men, Prescott and Wagner and Jones and, and Daniels and Olson and Ellen White, was the third angel's message in verity. What is being preached by Sunday churches, ladies and gentlemen, is not the third angel's message. You all know that. Come on, say amen. So their version of the gospel is corrupted. It does not deliver from sin. It gives you a license to continue on in a life of sin. They focus on the penalty of sin without focusing on also being delivered from the power of sin and one day from the presence. And they don't even focus on the penalty that well. They say Jesus might do it if you come down here and speak in tongues. <laughs> you might be saved if you have the Holy Ghost. So... Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. I want somebody to read that and I want to pull out a point in this because my clock got away from me faster than I thought and I want to give you time for questions. Revelation chapter 18, uh, 14 and verse 12. Does the gospel do away with the commandments of God? No. Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we what? That's the only way the law of God is going to be kept is if the lawgiver moves into our lives. No one can keep the Ten Commandments better than the one who wrote it. So God doesn't ask you to act like Jesus. He's not taking actors to heaven. 
He is taking people in whom Christ actually lives. And when Christ lives in you, we're going to live today the same way Jesus lived yesterday and where he would live forever. So it's not up for me to figure out how to be good, how to stop being bad. I'm to depend upon the promises of God. What promise? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will what? Perform it. Resting on the promises of God is how we enter into this wonderful experience and then keep the faith of Jesus. That's one of my favorite topics. Faith of Jesus, faith that Jesus expressed towards his father as a man, as the son of man. And the faith that Jesus expresses towards you as a son of God. He thinks you're worth dying for. Matter of fact, he thought you were worth it before the world began. And he said that the best time in history for you to exist is right now. You can do more for him right now than Daniel could. If it were better for Daniel to be living now and you back then, then y'all would have switched. God's not playing games. He's trying to win. Come on, say amen. But no, he said, you will serve me better now than Daniel will. And I believe that like Paul, we are going to hear that heavenly call and we're going to rise up and grasp hold of Jesus' righteousness. Come on and say amen. And shake off this old world and be about our Father's business. So I want to encourage you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.